against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. St. Luke, pray for us. The first one is that we're short tonight, tonight, 45 minutes instead of one hour, because I double scheduled myself to teach RCIA and this class at the exact same time. And so um, what, I, what I'm going to do is just shorten us up a little bit, and the RCIA is being shoved forward to uh, right when we're done. Um, so I won't have any break. We're just going to right into it. And uh, so we'll stop at at 8.15, and um, you guys will stand up and run out the door that way, and RCA is going to run in the door this way, and I'm going to teach them. So, Here's your hat, what's your hurry? Here's it. Change my hat, and uh, we'll be okay. All right, last time we concluded with something I wanted to um, just say something quick about and um, clarify something I said. Um... Well, I'll say what I said last time and let you clarify, and then I'll conclude with Saint B, because it's always good to clarify with the, with the saint. I said that we, um, we become this, I don't know if I said these exact words, the saviors of our fellow men. So like as a husband and a wife, the husband, I think I actually said this, saves his wife. Now, what did I mean by that? What's that? <laughs> it's blasphemy. It's all right. One person says blasphemy. It's heresy. Why? Jesus Right. So Jesus is the one savior of our souls. But I said that I participate in your salvation. That you rely upon me or your fellow men to save you. What do I mean? How can that? How can what she's saying be true and what I'm saying? So I'm not going to back down from what I said. You're supposed to see Jesus and other people. Other people, you can't see Jesus with your human eyes. You have to see Jesus in Christians. That's true. It's not just a matter of seeing. You're absolutely right. It's not just a matter of seeing. Like I'm kind of like Jesus because I like him a lot. But what? The spouse leads the other on a path to holiness, suffering. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, no, that's true. But it's a, you, you call it people up to a higher level by. Okay, but okay, yeah, that's true. But also, look, focus upon that point. Of, the question I was saying about, you know, Jesus saves, and then I'm saying that I save. Well, he's divine where the branches. Good. What do you mean by that? Give us a little more on that. Well, he's expecting us to be his arms and legs here on earth to to help uh, communicate yeah. the message that they are saved. Yeah. In fact, St. Paul says that explicitly in 1 Corinthians about man and wife. He says, just as Christ is the Savior of the church, his body, so the husband has a similar relationship to his wife. Okay? And so, um, and that doesn't exclude the wife as partaking in the salvation of the husband either. So just to clarify what I was saying is that we are participators in the body of Christ and therefore our arms are Christ's arms out to the world. So St. Bede says, uh, Jesus does not say, why do you persecute my members to St. Paul? That's what we finished with last time. You know, St. Paul's struck off his horse and he says, and he hears our Lord saying, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. Who are you persecuting? But of course, St. Paul's persecuting Christians. So he says, Jesus does not say, why do you persecute my members, but why do you persecute me? 
Because he himself still suffers affronts in his body, which is the church. Similarly, Christ will take account of the good actions done in his members. For he said, I was hungry and you gave me food. And explaining these words, he added, as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Okay? So that's what I meant by that. And it's not just a nice way of saying, well, look, we get to participate. We're kind of helping Jesus in his work. Sacramentally, we are mysteriously united to Christ in a way it's unexplainable. Come on. It's unexplainable. In a sense, we stand before the awesome mystery of God in the sacraments, and we become participators in his own life. So it's not just like a nice thing, like, well, Jesus did it, so I do it. We're kind of like each other that way. No, really, God is working through us, and so things happen at our hands, which we could never do on our own, because we are really living the life of God. Okay? So, that's that. Any questions about that? No. Okay, let's move on. Chapter 9. Uh, we talked right there at the beginning about St. Paul. And this is my last little announcement is that um, Norma's over here highlighting her pages uh, that she copied off from the Bible. She want to highlight her Bible. You've got to highlight your Bible. And I haven't been saying that enough lately. Make marks in your Bible and draw lines. I was like drawing, you know, stars of David across my pages like, you know, today. Not really, but I'll show you what I did today. See how nice the color that is? See? Because... When I look at the page, i got to see what I'm talking about, and that's going to help me. If, if I look at a blank page, it's like starting over every time I read the Bible. i got to put notes in there for myself to remember what I'm writing. I have a terrible memory. I really do. And so if I don't have notes in there, I'm going to be lost. And writing in these pages is not going to condemn you to hell, I promise. All right? The nuns are going to get after me. In the old days, they might have got after me. I don't think they have to so, alright. So please, 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 make notes. If you have a little thought, put a little one there up to the top of the page. I got a little scripture verses, little notes to myself, what everything means, you know? So, alright, let's move on. St. Paul gets knocked off his horse. We did all that. And um, in verse, chapter 9, verse 6. Or no, uh, verse 5. And he said, Acts, chapter 9. Yes, we're in Acts of the Apostles. And he said, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise out of the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The, man, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could, not see, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And you probably know the story well. He goes to his conversion. There's a man sent to him to give him his sight back in Damascus, and he's baptized there in verse uh, 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. For several days he was with the disciples of Damascus. In the synagogue immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call on this name? Notice he goes right to the synagogue. This happens all the time in the stories of Paul, where the first time he enters a city, he goes to the synagogue. Again and again, right? Lewis, you've been reading through Acts, right? Isn't that true? Every time he goes to a city, immediately he goes to the synagogue. And when does he go there, usually? On what day of the week? Ah, on the Sabbath. Now, what's going on here? 
he's converted to Christ, but he's still going to the synagogue. He seems to be riding the middle road. So what's going on? Is he trying to convert? Yeah, every time he goes to the synagogue, he waits, they proclaim the, God, the, the Old Testament reading, and he stands up and says, that means Jesus Christ. And he, he starts going on a tirade about Jesus Christ, and then they either try to stone him, or arrest him, or something like that. Again and again, every time he goes to a city, this is what he does. And some people, the Seventh-day Adventists in particular, will use that to say that, look... The early Christians continue to go to the synagogue, and it's the Catholic Church has corrupted that. Now you're worshiping on Sunday instead of the Sabbath. And in fact, you can see that in St. Paul. He always goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Well, there might be something true that the early church definitely struggled with their identity of how they're to deal with Old Testament law and New Testament law. Okay, But in fact, that's not really what's going on with St. Paul at all. St. Paul deals with that issue plenty. But he's on the, definitely on the side of the, of the men saying, you don't got to go. You don't have to follow the Sabbath law. You don't have to follow the kosher laws. We're going to deal with all that tonight. Why would he go to the Sabbath? Why would he go on the Sabbath to the synagogue? Yeah, it's yeah, very practical. If you're going to convert Jews, you got to go where they're at. So he goes to the synagogue and he preaches first to the Jews because they are the chosen people. And once they reject him, he goes to the Gentiles. That's the cycle of all his, all his work. Time and time again as he goes into these towns. Well, it's more than just that that's where they are. He's also not eschewing their tradition. He's just growing their tradition. That's true. That's true. All right. Um, verse 23. Where were we? What verse? Well, yeah, verse 23 is fine. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him, over, let him down over the wall, lowering him in a basket. And you can get different um, accounts of that through the epistles. If you're writing notes down, you can put down Galatians chapter 1, verse 16. I'll write it on the board for you. Galatians 1.16, I think this is correct. Yes. And 2 Corinthians 11.32-33. You can look that up later. Don't look it up now. Do I have anything to tell us what he did in the period of time he's been charged? Um, you mean after this? Like, that's a dead time, and then suddenly they, they send over, and they bring, and it was a Barnabas brought him back. That's a little bit later, so we haven't gotten there yet. So, but he was over there like a year. No, he goes down to, um, not to Tarsus for the year, but uh, it's not. It's, well, that's okay, go ahead. That's all right. Just all um, he goes to Arabia for three years in Galatians chapter 1. And it, it seems to fit in the story right there at verse 23. For many days had passed. Well, what, what's many days in ancient writing? We don't really know, except that at some point here, he leaves Damascus and goes down to Arabia for three years. And then he goes back to Damascus. And that's when they go after him. He starts preaching again. And he gets lowered down from the wall. You go look at those, these texts, so you get a little bit more information on that. Okay? Um, all right, Lewis, why don't you keep reading for, for us from verse, uh, we'll read from verse 26. Lewis, that's you. Verse 26. 
when he arrived back in Jerusalem, and I wondered, why did he go back to Jerusalem? But in any event. <laughs> well, look, it's going to tell you if you keep reading. Trying to join the, the, the disciples. That's why he went back. Yeah. Okay, go. Well, also, uh, I have a question about that. Okay. See, if you go through this, I'm just reading it. I see about four or five of the different disciples that we know being addressed, but where are all the other seven? Well, a lot I mean, of times, yeah, a lot are these of these the brothers that they refer to, or what? Because well, there are a lot of other disciples, and they can't stay in Jerusalem. Right. Some of them, some of them have left, but also some of them have stayed there. It seems like the the apostles have actually stayed there in Jerusalem, at least for now. Okay. And when these different situations come up, a lot of times the people mentioned are people that have a particular influence in the story itself. Peter oftentimes is mentioned. Why? Well, he's the captain, right? He's the head guy. Um, James is oftentimes mentioned. Why is James mentioned in Jerusalem? You guys know? Yeah, by tradition, he was the. This is James the, the lesser. Okay, not the one that's killed first in the that we're about to get to, but he was bishop of Jerusalem. So when anything ecclesiastical takes place in Jerusalem, he's definitely involved in it. Okay, um, and other people like that. So the more influential are mentioned. But keep going. When he when he arrived back in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples there, but it turned out that they were all afraid of him. They even refused to believe that he was a disciple. Then Barnabas took him in charge and introduced him to the apostles. He explained to them how on his journey Saul had seen the Lord who had conversed with him and how Saul had been speaking out fearlessly in the name of Jesus at Damascus. Saul stayed on with them, moving freely about Jerusalem and expressing himself quite openly in the name of the Lord. He even addressed the Greek-speaking Jews and debated, and debated with them. They, for their part, responded by trying to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, some of them took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Okay, some of your Bibles might have, you said the Greek-speaking Jews. That's a, that's a good example. What's your, what's your Bible say? Mine says, he spoke also to the Gentiles and disputed with the Greeks. Okay, again, the Greeks were the Gentiles, weren't they? What's that? The Greeks at that point in time would have been. Well, that's an interesting question because, um, and this is a, the the question of the Jewish reads a little bit different. Does anybody have anything different than what they had? Hellenists. Yeah, the Hellenists, right? Um, probably the what what is being mentioned there by Saint Luke are the Hellenists, which were who were the Hellenists. Greek-speaking Jews. Yeah, they were Greek-speaking Jews. So there's an interpretation of the text given to you in your translation. Okay, so instead of translating the, the word literally, they give you the, what the meaning of it is. They're simply people that were born outside of the Holy Land, okay, and had probably, well, there were synagogues, there was Greek, Greek synagogues in Jerusalem, people that moved back, but they spoke Greek. So they read the scriptures in Greek. We talked about this before. Okay, and so um, Paul goes after them. Why does he go after them? Why does he debate them? And why do they debate with him? Do you think? I mean, why not the other Jews? You got to think about these things. How many of you guys read before we got here today? Come on, guys. Why do you think? Where's Tarsus? I gave you maps. You didn't get their map. Anybody else thinking a map? Find Tarsus on your map. Go north from uh, from the Holy Land to um, 
uh, Antioch. It's right above Cyprus. Right above Cyprus, exactly. Well, yeah, there you go. If you see Cyprus out in the middle of the Mediterranean, okay, and you go north just to the right, you see uh, Cilicia, 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 whatever, and you'll see Tarsus out there. Oh, yeah. You see that? If you go Cyprus, you go northeast from Cyprus. Okay? So why is he debating with the Greek-speaking Jews? Yeah, the whole area up there is so close to Greek, Greece. In fact, um, had, uh, Tarsus had been very influential. The city had been very influential historically and had been granted by the Romans, had been granted, all the citizens of Tarsus had been granted freedom and citizenship with Rome. And so that makes sense of why later on, Paul, when he's arrested, he says, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. When he realizes he realize he's going to be killed by the Jews, he says, wait a minute, you can't kill me. I'm a Roman citizen. And they have to take him to Rome to try him. Okay? Because he's from Tarsus. Okay? So, I, well, I just gave my other answer away. Is that in verse 30, they send him off to Tarsus. Why? Because that's where he's from. And how do I know that's where he's from? Yeah, how do you know how do you know, Lewis? How do you know? Because you haven't used your, your highlighter or your pen in your Bible. And if you had, you would have been reading extremely carefully. And notice that back in verse 11. Read verse 11 for us, uh, Lewis. Come on, Lewis. Chapter 9? Yeah! The Lord said to him, Go at once to Straight Street, and at the house of Judas, ask for a certain Saul of Tarsus. There you go. Saul of Tarsus. Okay, he's from Tarsus. They sent him back to his hometown. Alright? Great. Now let's go back. See, and here's the thing. What do you do? I carry around with me in my handy-dandy Bible case a little tiny flexible ruler. My brother found a really cool one. It's like totally flexible, like, like rubber. And so you can put it down. You can cross a page with this. You can go, you know, that's my problem. I'm going to cross the page. But anyways. And what you do is you connect the two things. It's your pen. And every time you open your Bible, you'll go, Tarsus, Tarsus. Oh, okay. Boom, your Bible study's done. All right? Fine. Verse 31. That's why they sent him off to Tarsus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Cynthia, verse 31. You with me? Yeah. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. Keep going. As Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints that lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. Okay, hold on just a minute. I got a little quote for you from St. John Chrysostom. St. Luke goes on to speak about Peter and his visits to the faithful. Now, St. John Chrysostom, early church father, okay? Listen to what he says about Peter. St. Luke goes on to speak about Peter and his visits to the faithful. He does not want to give the impression that fear is the reason for Peter's leaving Jerusalem. So he first gives an account of the situation of the church. After indicating previously that Peter had stayed in Jerusalem during the persecution, Peter acts like a general, reviewing his troops to see that they are properly trained and in good order, and to discover where his presence is most needed. 
We see him going in all directions and we find him in all parts. If he makes this present journey, it is, it is because he thinks that the faithful are in need of his teaching and encouragement. So you see, even in the early church, and even before St. John Chrysostom, the reverence for Peter and his position among the apostles was very clear. I mean, we get it even in, the, in Acts of the Apostles. Okay? So keep going, Cynthia. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was a Joppa disciple named Tabitha, which means Dorcas or Gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping, and showing coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one, Simon the Tanner. Okay, so we get almost the culmination there of that work in the early church, that almost magical, mystical work of the body of Christ to the point where now the apostles are not only healing people that have been sick, they raise somebody from the dead in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, we get also at the end of that story, I'm going to talk, go back a little bit to, um, to Dorcas, lady who, what do we know about her? In verse uh, 36, towards the end of verse 36, it says, she was full of good works and acts of charity. Okay, so keep that in mind, because we're going to also meet another guy similarly that does similar stuff in the next chapter. But it says that Peter goes down to uh, stay with a man named Simon, a tanner. Okay, and the story is about to turn. In fact, we're right on the edge. We're at the end of one section of Acts of the Apostles, and we're beginning now the last phase, in a sense, of Acts of the Apostles. And it says he stays with a tanner. Why do you think that's important? Does anybody know what the next section of Acts is going to deal with? The question. What's that? Is he a tanner himself? Paul, well, I think he goes to, in Rome, I think he goes and works. Yeah, but but at this point, but, oh yeah, the tents, not a tanner, yeah, tents, that's the confusion. But he would be unclean in the eyes of the Jews. Yeah. Working with dead skins. Yeah, it was, it was not a highly sought after occupation among the Jews because the, the, almost guarantee that you're going to become ritually unclean at some point, working with the, with the dead skin of animals, or the skin of dead animals. Dead skin of dead animals, something like that. Right. Very stinky. Was that very stinky? Very stinky. Have you been a tanner in the past? No, I know a tanner. Oh, really? Okay, so not highly sought after. So, so Peter enters in this very precarious situation where he's staying with a guy who's in a very precarious situation among the Jews. And immediately we're introduced into the next section of the uh, story. And Peter's got this as a background now. 
He's gone and he's been in this state of dealing with the question of ritual purity. And this is the question that's going to drive the rest of Acts of the Apostles. Our goal here, you know, we only have one more class. Our goal here is just to get up to chapter 15. I told you guys that in the beginning. Because after chapter 15 is the story of St. Paul. And we're going to use those chapters as our launching pad for, for the epistles of St. Paul. Okay, So this is the introduction to the crisis that's about to hit the church in chapter 15, where the first council of the church, the first ecumenical council will be called. Okay, Just like all the modern ecumenical councils that you might know. There haven't been that many, but um, just like those, there was one here in chapter 15 of Acts of the Apostles, where the apostles are called together to deal with the serious decision of the church. Okay? Um, Fine. Or chapter 10. Go ahead, Cynthia. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Okay, look at your maps real quick. Where's Caesarea? Boy, it's not on there. Yes, it is. No. Where? Uh, yes, but it's a different Caesarea. This one, if you look, I don't know what these strange markings are, but do you see the Holy Land and you see there's this hook, a fish hook, by that thing? Caesarea is basically right there where the fish hook ends. See that fish hook? Those marks, I'm sorry about that. What's that? Right at the tip of the hook. Right where you catch the fish. How many of you have fished before? Yes. Fish oh, so Joppa and that other oh, town, Ida or whatever, close to that? Yes. Yes. We can show you that later. I want to encourage you guys as you're reading through these things. First of all, I encourage you to read it. But when you're reading through it, you got to get out a map. This first thing I did, as soon as I started getting stories out of cities, boom, I pulled out my map today, and I, uh, I, I wasn't satisfied with my little one that I carry around with me all the time, so I got out my big Atlas of the Bible, which you can get for like $2, you know, down at Borders or whatever. Maybe not two, but you know, like five bucks. These things are cheap. So... Uh, anyways, Caesarea is, was the capital for the Romans for all of Judea. Okay? It was the Roman capital from which they ruled at that time. Why is that important? Because Peter is now going to the center, to the capital city of the Roman Empire, which is ruling over Jerusalem. It's in some, some, some tension between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And he goes to that city, and now, for good reason, because it's in some sense for that area, the center of the Gentile world. It's everything the Jews hate. Okay, and he goes right there, and he goes and meets a particular man there. Okay, a centurion, also somebody that the Jews hate. Okay, go ahead, Cynthia, from verse 1 again. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms liberally to the people, and prayed constantly to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is, at, is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those that had waited on him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay. It mentions that Cornelius is a, um, in verse 2, a devout man who feared God. Most likely, as the story develops, we find out that he's one who followed the God of the Jews. He followed Yahweh, and yet he was ritually unclean. He was not circumcised, and most likely he didn't follow the kosher laws. Two points that we're going to deal with in the story. Okay, he's a devout man, but he's really not a Jew. He's following, he's maybe taken with everything that the Jews are doing and, and, and the God they're worshiping, but he's not really following the law. Okay? What do we know about him? He's devout, and what other aspect do they give about him? What the, what's the reason why God has chosen him? He gives alms to the poor. Yeah, he gives alms. Yeah. St. Cyprian says, In Acts of the Apostles, it is clear that alms not only free us from spiritual death, but also from temporal death. Tabitha, a woman who, had, who did many good works, this is a girl that was just raised from the dead, who did many good works and acts of charity had taken ill and died. And Peter was sent for. No sooner had he arrived with all the diligence of his apostolic charity than he was summoned by widows in tears, praying for the dead woman more by gestures than by words. Peter believed that he could obtain what they were asking for so ins insistently and that Christ's help would be available in answer to the prayers of the poor and whose persons he himself had been clothed. And so it was. He did come to Peter's aid, and to whom, and to whom he had said in the gospel that he would grant everything asked for in his name. For this reason, he stops the course of death, and the woman returns to life. And to the amazement of all, she revived, restoring her risen body to the light of the day. Such was the power of works of mercy, of good deeds. Okay, I point that out to you, and I want to also turn to one other chat, one other book. Keep your hand in Acts. Go back to the book of Tobit. Now I know you're all thinking, where is Tobit? Find Psalms. Okay, and go backwards a couple of little, little tiny books. It's after Nehemiah. So if you see Nehemiah or Ezra or First Corinthians or First Chronicles or something like that, Second Chronicles. You're too far. So go go to Psalms and then go backwards. You getting there? Alright. If you can't find it, look on with somebody. Go to chapter 4. This is Tobit's um, kind of last will and testament to his son. And he's given him the last instruction saying, do this and you'll be okay. Chapter 4, verse 6. Tobit chapter 4, verse 6. For if you do what is true, your ways will prosper through your deeds. Give alms from your possessions to all who live uprightly, and do not let your eye begrudge the gift when you make it. Do not turn your face away from any poor man, and the face of God will not be turned away from you. If you have many possessions, make your gift from them in proportion. 
If you do not be afraid to give according to the little you have, so you will be laying up a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity. For charity delivers from death and keeps you from entering the darkness. Ah, charity delivers you from death. Who was just delivered from death? Dorcas, or Tabitha, right? And so she had done these good works during her life, and God saw that. Similarly with the centurion, right? He gives alms generously, and God recognizes that. He shares what he has with those in need, with the rest of the body of Christ. I speak the body of Christ in maybe an almost heretical fashion. I hope not heretical exactly, but... When we talk about the body of Christ, there is the mystical body of Christ, but all of creation, all men are creating the image of God. And so they have the potential for being brought in to participate in the life of God. Why am I harping on that? Because today, it is so common, McLean especially, one of the wealthiest areas, where we just never have enough. And so how could we possibly give, you know, in the old days... Tithing was 10%, right? Yes? Yeah, my, I remember my dad as a child, when we were dirt poor at a certain point in our lives, when my dad got through this financial crisis, and we like didn't have beds, we slept in sleeping bags for a little while. But he always gave 10%. He always had us sit down and write the check to the church. And we'd have to write it out. To realize that it's God who gave us the good things, and we give back to him first. And then everything else will be taken care of. And sure enough, my dad's doing well, very well in his life now. God always took care of us, even the poor state. So never be afraid. Give generously to the church. Give generously to the missionaries of charity, whatever. It's hard to do 10%. Do it. Why not? Trust God in that. And he'll give back to you just abundance and abundance. I'm not so good at it. My wife's better, so I give her the checkbook. I said, you, you take care of it. But, um, yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. Think about that, because here it is. The almsgiving defends us against death, and most importantly, against death of the soul. Okay, and again, in chapter, chapter, um, chapter 12, mentions the same thing. Chapter 12, verse 9. For almsgiving delivers from death and it will purge away every sin. Those who perform deeds of charity and of righteousness will have fullness of life. But those who commit sin are the en enemies of their own lives. You guys, go back to Acts. You guys know that. I mean, if we just feed our own you know, whatever, need for our own things, we just become so enclosed on ourselves. But if we realize that everything we have is God's anyways, give it back to Him. Alright, Acts, I won't, I won't, that's more sermon stuff. I won't get into that. Acts chapter 10. Where were we? Verse uh, 9. Verse 9. I remember your name. Yes? Brock. Brock, I didn't that B. Brock, will you read verse um, 9 for us and on? The next day, while they were on their way and nearing the city, Peter went up to the roof terrace to pray about the time. He was hungry and wished to eat, and while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open, and something resembling a large sheet coming down, lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all the earth's four-legged animals and reptiles and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, Get up, Peter. 
chapter 7. Keep your hand in Acts and go back to it. Mark chapter 7. We always talk about Christ being the fulfillment of the law. But oftentimes it kind of escapes what that means. And I think this is a good example. Chapter 7, verse... Um, Verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 14. Carrie, you want to read that part? 14 and following. Then he called, to the, and he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart, but the stomach, and goes out into the sewer? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, It is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile the person. Okay, so Christ, how does, how does Christ fulfill the law in that regard, the dietary laws? Yeah, but how does that fulfill, I mean, look, there's a law that they're not supposed to eat certain things, so Christ seems to be contradicting the law. Yeah, but he seems to be still saying, don't do that and do this. I mean, he seems to be contradicting it. You're, you're right, but give me a little more. Just need transcending the law. Transcending, yeah, but he says, I do not wipe away even a tittle, not even a mark, not even an accent mark. How's it going? Good. So how does he fulfill the law? Jennifer? No? Anybody? Certainly no. It does seem like he's contradicting, doesn't it? A little bit. Oftentimes Christ fulfills the law, in fact, every time Christ fulfills the law, because he knows what the law is for. He knows the purpose of the law. Okay, and he why does he know the purpose of the law? Because it's his law. He is the law. He's the lawgiver. And when a lawgiver gives a law, he's giving that which he knows to be true. Okay? And so God sets down certain regulations for Israel in order that something might occur. Okay? God sets down dietary laws, or the law of circumcision in the Old Testament, in order that. Jesus, tells us why the dietary laws were in the Old Testament right here. Okay? He says the, the whole purpose of these laws is fundamentally about your heart, making your heart clean. Okay? And how do the dietary laws make our heart clean? There's two ways. Well, actually, one way. The dietary laws in the Old Testament, which are found primarily in Leviticus chapter 11. Go look that up if you guys get a chance later on. It's, a, it's a, just a funny chapter. I read it today. <laughs> It's, you know, it says, it says, well, look, don't, don't, you can eat animals that have a cloven hoof, you know, a parted hoof, and that coo, uh, chew the cud. What, what, what does that mean, chew the cud? What's, yeah. Like what, a cow. You can eat a cow. 
But if an animal doesn't have a cloven hoof, but it does chew the cud, don't eat it. Okay? And if it does chew the cud, but or doesn't it goes through this, you know, like if it does one but not the other, don't eat it or do eat it, and then it's, it's, it sounds crazy. So anyways, I did a little little research. I'm not a biologist, but there's two answers to this question. One's a little bit more theological, and it deals primarily with the point of pork for the Jews. Why are the Jews not allowed to eat pork? That's part of it, but that's part of my second answer. What's that? It has to do with Egypt. You remember when Israel came out of Egypt and they're in the desert, it says the Jews complained against God. They murmured against God because they didn't, they yearned for the flesh pots of Egypt. Remember that? The flesh pots of Egypt. The flesh pots of Egypt, their staple diet was the, the pig, pork. And they yearned for that staple diet of Egypt. And what God did when he brought them out into the desert is he said, look, he said, all the things that the Egyptians were worshiping and that they didn't eat, you can now eat. Okay, why? Because if you're eating it, what's it prove about the thing? It's not a god. Okay? And likewise, those things which you ate there, you're not going to eat anymore. Okay? So he turns the thing on his head to show them that not to worship the false gods of the people around them. So there's two reasons for the kosher laws, for the Levitical laws. That's one of them. Okay? Many of the Levitical, the things are allowed to eat or not eat, have to do with training them what's a god and what's not a god. There's only one god, right? And the things that you worshipped as god in Egypt, because they had got involved in that worship, you got to eat it. So that every meal of your life proves to you that what you did in your old life was a bunch of nonsense. Okay? There's a further reason that is you read Leviticus chapter 11, they make these divisions. Um, some expect that they will make the point that the majority of the animals that fall into the clean category that you can eat are herbivores. Things that eat grasses and plants and things. And the things you can't eat are carnivores. Things that eat meat. Okay, and I was talking to my brother about this earlier. He loves Leviticus because he, he was an animal science major. So he goes crazy with this stuff. And he was talking about how parasites will live on animals, and then when they get eaten by other animals, in fact, there'll be a parasite on one animal as a way to get inside another animal. Okay? As it gets eaten and consumed, and now that parasite is living in the, in the animal that, you know, whatever. So you can't eat things like lions or eagles or things like that. Okay? Because they were they were possibility of being a host to major problems for Israel from a health standpoint. Okay? So the reason I point that out is because there's reasons in the Old Testament why God did this. Okay? Alright, let's keep reading. Well, what's happening here now is we're going to get in chapter 10 is this falling away now of those things which God had set up primarily because of the worship of these foreign gods. Am I out of time? Thank you for pointing that out to me. I'm out of time. All right, listen, here's what we're going to do. Because I really am out of time. i got to go to RCIA. So here's what we're going to do. Do me a favor. Please, 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 please read from chapter 10 through chapter 15. You say, that's a lot. 
chapter 13 through chap- and chapter 14, both are the story of Paul's first journey. If you guys want to skip that, I don't care. Feel free. Okay? Just read through chapter 10 real quick, and then all of chapter 15 intently. Because what happens in chapter 10... Hold on, just give me a second. What happens in chapter 10 is we have the crisis that takes place in the church, which is going to drive the rest of Acts of the Apostles and all the epistles of Paul. And it's the question of whether men must be circumcised in order to become Christians. Okay? And whether they are supposed to keep the dietary laws or not. And that's the fundamental point that's going to be a dividing point in the early church. And it's going to have to be dealt with over and over and over again. And in chapter 15, it's going to be the hammers going to be laid down by the church as to the answer to that. So read it intently. And next time I'm going to cover a lot of material because it's our last class. Okay? Um, do I have any announcements for next week? I don't think so. Mon, why are you giving me a bad luck? Everything's okay? Yeah, I said, do we have any other things next week? No, we just have, okay, just next Tuesday, that's it. All right, please stand, we'll finish in prayer, and you guys can exit, stay bright. Amen. the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Luke. Amen. the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For those that came in late, we're